Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Dr. Dads. And I'm here with my co-host, my good friend down in El Paso, who just told me it's 108 degrees down there. It's hot. It's hot. <laughs> I know last week I was bragging about cool rain, but it's hot right now. Wow. So uh, both, both Dr. Paul and I live in the Pacific Northwest, and so we don't know what those temperatures feel like, All except for he just told us he came back from uh, down there. So... Um, uh, yes. feel for you. I'll take are- the rain and the overcast weather, please. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, the intro or bio for our amazing guest that I'm, I'm touched as a natural doctor and proud to call him a colleague. And uh, I'm going to dive into his bio here. So Dr. Paul Anderson, naturopathic medical doctor, is uh, the director of advanced medical therapies in Seattle, Washington, a clinic focusing on the care of patients with cancer and chronic diseases. Former positions include professor of pharmacology and clinical medicine at Bastyr University, which is also in Seattle, and chief of IV services for Bastyr Oncology Research Center. He's a graduate of NUNM, formerly known as National College of Naturopathic Medicine, and began instructing classes at naturopathic medical schools in the early 1990s. He's a co-author of the Hay House book, which we think everybody needs to get, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, with Dr. Mark Sengler, as well as a co-author with Jack Canfield, the the success guru um, called Success Breakthroughs. He's a frequent CME speaker and writer and has extended his educational outreach through his CE website, www.consultdranderson.com. So I had the amazing pleasure of having Dr. Anderson uh, teach me at one of my uh, chelation courses uh, over a year ago, and uh, I was blown away by this guy. He's, he's full of compassion. He's like a big teddy bear, full of love, and so intelligent. And you never feel, you know, you never feel that sense of, I know more than you, and you're a younger doctor, and therefore you don't know anything. It's, it's, this brings about him this energy of inclusiveness, and no doubt he's taking on a huge role just with advancing naturopathic medicine, advancing alternative medicine, and and really speaking to everything that all of us need to, do, to need to know with regards to prevention and beyond. So we're super excited to have you here, Dr. Paul. Um, please say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Thank you. That's an awesome intro. Um, so my name is Paul Anderson. I do live in Seattle. I travel quite a bit. I just got back from Texas, where it is very hot. And uh, uh, but I'm coming to you from my my little studio I have here. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor, as was mentioned. And um, actually, I I started in medicine on uh, on the allopathic side of medicine uh, in 1976. So that's a long time ago. Um, and I, I did that mostly in laboratory medicine and then in, um, I don't remember exactly when now, but uh, I have adult children, so the older ones were babies. Uh, I thought it would be a great idea, I own my own lab, uh, to sell my lab and uh, go to finish medical school as a naturopathic doctor. And 
told my wife and she's still married to me, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> we had, we had uh, five little, little, little kids. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't recommend that by the way. <laughs> plan your two life and I kind of, yeah. I can't imagine having more than two. So good for <laughs> plan, you. plan your life better. But, but anyway, we lived through it. Um, and uh, so practiced in the state of Oregon, just south of uh, where I am right now for uh, quite a while. And had, in those days, um, everyone pretty much had general type practices. There was a couple people that specialized in stuff, but really we were more, more generalist uh, as people do now. But the way that the practice evolved rather quickly is once people find out that you do integrative or naturopathic therapies, um, you get different types of patients. And so we start to get a lot of cancer patients and a lot of people with very bad chronic illness, both things I knew next to nothing about really. Um, I mean, I knew how not to harm somebody, but, but really if you go back say 25 years, uh, what we knew wasn't very much. Um, but the patients kept coming. So that's what really drives your educational, uh, endeavors really once you're once you're out on your own so that's the direction that my practice went with cancer and bad chronic illness and it's been that way ever since um i have always like even back to i think i started teaching professionals in the like 79 or something so i've been teaching professionals for a long time um and my non-clinical kind of educational mission is just Really, it's largely based on the idea that there's no reason someone should go through learning as many things the hard way as I did and not, like, share it. Like, <laughs> like that just makes no sense to me at all. Uh, and, and partly because I like teaching. I, if I didn't like teaching, I might not do that. But that's, that's really where that came from. Um, and then um, when we did the book that you mentioned and I'll, I'll just, I'll hold it up so that my publisher gets to see, I did this. Uh, they love it. Uh, there you go. Square orange. Can't miss it outside. the box. <laughs> Mark and I, Mark Stangler, Dr. Stangler, he's in California. Uh, we were in school together. I think we were separated by a year. Um, but as happens in many professional schools, he married someone in my class. So so I know the whole family. Um, he and I, he came to a training I was doing about, gosh, five years ago now, four years ago. And um, it was oncology, integrative oncology training. And he, we got together after and he said, you know, um, he says, because I had just, I was finishing up the research uh, in integrative oncology at Bastyr. We can talk about that later. Um, and was presenting all this new stuff we'd learned, et cetera. And he we were having dinner and he says, you know, um, you should write a book because people like, you know, only so many people go to conferences and this, this is really exciting what you do. And they followed it right away with the statement, but you'll never get a publishing deal, uh, which is awesome. You know, <laughs> thanks Mark. And, uh, so, uh, he says, but, uh, he says, because you, you only do things for professionals and you're not a known quantity, but he says, I've written a bunch of books for the public. And so I can get a publishing deal. And what was interesting when we, we were, it was like 20 years since we'd seen each other. Um, our, both of our practices evolved in the same time period in the same way, just based on, Hey, cancer patients are going to come, whether you want them to or not, you learn, learn about it mm -hmm. because he was in California and was a bit more restricted 
pra uh, scope of practice wise, he developed some extreme expertise in the area of botanicals and cancer and some other stuff. And I had developed expertise in different areas. And so we sat down and outlined the book. Five chapters were kind of my wheelhouse and five were marks. And then we traded chapters. But it was an awesome book to write because for the same reason that I teach doctors, we felt like there's not a great resource for patients, families, loved ones, mm -hmm. and people with cancer to go to sort through all the alternative information. The book's really well referenced so that also if you go to your doctor, they can see there's references, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so the book was really a, a labor of love. It was very easy to write because it just it was our life, you know. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the, the big, you know, 10,000 foot version of the career. But uh, I'm, I have a clinic in Seattle called Advanced Medical Therapies, and it's uh, operated day to day by my associates because I'm gone doing other things too much. And so I, mm -hmm. we have case conferences and I still keep my uh, hands in with these patients. But uh, I always tell the patients it's not safe for me to manage you because I might be in Austin tomorrow or something. <laughs> so yeah. We're repeating somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was. Well, you know, you're, the name of the book really says so much. Um, and, and like you said, the square orange on the front versus a round one. I mean, what is it like for you uh, with some of those initial conversations with patients, because I imagine that the patients you see sometimes a either come as a last resort, or b they they come to you because they only want alternative therapies. But how do you start to sort of bridge that? And that's what this book does very well: uh, bridge the gap between the east and west, you know, philosophies or what have you, or prevention versus um, you know the standard of care, which would probably be chemotherapy for most cancers. How do you how do you bridge that conversation? And maybe the book is part of that tool. Well, the book has helped a lot because because there's a lot of as you know conversations we have every day repeatedly with people. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was part of it too. Um, you know, it's been interesting to to live through the last 25 years and doing this. In that, you know, up to about 15 years ago, it was most patients were told if they worked with anyone else like me. Um, that the, the oncologist would probably fire them. It wouldn't treat them, uh, which was awesome, you know, to deal with. So we did a lot of like, you know, clandestine integrative oncology in the old days. Um, and there were, you know, slowly, it was usually guys about to retire uh, in, in the oncology world. They would like send me their elderly patients who they knew. You know, they would say, "Look, I'll kill you if I give you chemotherapy." So go see this Anderson guy. I don't know what he does, but go see him. Like those are the referrals that you would get. Right. Um, at, at, which is actually good because if an elderly person doesn't get chemo, you you actually have a pretty good canvas to work with. But um, mm -hmm. in the last ten years, you know, it's sort of the the, the specialty of naturopathic oncology. All that is kind of out there and you know it's we don't get as many people being told not to see us um so the conversation though um and this is uh, we're going to have a integrative oncology conference that i'm helping to run in the fall and i kind of built it around something i realized after looking backwards at cancer patients and and it's aside from prevention of cancer which is the best conversation to have right most people don't come for prevention, although some do now, especially if they have a family member pass away. Uh, th that usually gets their attention. But 
once you're in cancer care, you, you have to look at it that there's the initial diagnosis and treatment. And sometimes that's super heavy treatment. Sometimes it's very little, like with the elderly folks, et cetera. But that's one period. Then there's recovery from treatment, which now we get people coming in for because they've got neuropathy from chemo or they just have no energy or something. And then there's actually a third phase, which is if they get stable, either stable disease or no evidence of disease remission, then there's secondary prevention. And we used to get none of those people. And now we get people who come in and they say, I survived breast cancer. They say they can't find it. And they also said, well, come back if you have symptoms or you get cancer. Is there anything else I can do? There's a ton you can do. So in the book, we kind of go through that and looking at it through the lens of what are the big triggers for cancer? What's appropriate in period A here where they may be getting radiation and all this other stuff versus recovery versus prevention. So um, nowadays, it's like we have a little bit more finessed way of, uh, of dealing with that. So if someone comes in and they say, um, oh, I don't want to do any chemo or radiation or whatever, or surgery, um, we can kind of back up and say, well, you know, sometimes that's appropriate idea. Sometimes, like you've got a 90% cure rate with, with a standard therapy, it would be in most cases, not too smart to, you know, to not take that bet. What we try and tell them, though, is that doesn't exclude all this other stuff that we do. Mm -hmm. And we can do a lot of things that make standard therapies work. Now, we also have patients where the oncologist literally says, you know, if, if I had your cancer, I would not do standard therapy because it's got like a 4% success rate and 100% you know, adverse event rate. Mm -hmm. And that's really common now too, where they'll say, I'll give you the treatment if you want, but I wouldn't take it myself. Um, so in those cases, again, we're starting with a blank slate. So a lot of it is just reframing the conversation to what's, you know, logical and, and, uh, and letting people know it's, it's pretty much not either or. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that was one thing one of the reasons mark and i decided to do book two is we we both kind of evolved in that idea of it's it's not that we're bad or they're bad or we're good and they're bad or whatever um it's it's that there's so much we can do that no one knows about if we work together and sometimes that's a little bit of standard stuff sometimes it's a lot but if you look at the trail of from diagnosis through secondary prevention Integrative and naturopathic oncology covers about 80% of it and 20% is standard care. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing people don't realize. So that's kind of, the, that's the way we lay it out for them. And, you know, if they're really invested in doing something that we think is not the safest thing or not good, we usually will refer them and try and get someone else to talk to them. But, but most people get it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, David. That's really cool. I mean, it's it's interesting the timetable there, like you're saying, in the last 15 years, how so much has changed because you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, there were children being taken away from parents just 10 years ago if, you know, they didn't do the standard of care for cancer or things like that, right? Or and people were having to leave the country, I know, in the U.S. and go to Mexico or they were going to other countries to get these types of treatments and these therapies that just aren't available, you know, and, and were just misunderstood, like you're saying. And now it's nice to see this integration of both. And like you're saying, it's not 
that one's better than the other. It's just they they both need to be used, you know, in unison depending on the case. Yeah, it's 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 a different landscape. I, I will say there's still um, depending on the city you're in, there's still children being taken away from parents and things of that nature, which we we treat pediatric oncology. Uh, patients and it's always a really fine line you know with kids and there's legitimate concern but you know there's some uh it's very state by state uh so for example in seattle here it's it's pretty restrictive but we can still do a lot depending on how we navigate the line um in chicago uh i i had the privilege of being involved with a, a colleague had a child going through bone marrow uh, transplant because of a, a blood cancer. And um, the Children's Hospital in Chicago actually allowed me to conference with them on how to use some natural therapies during bone marrow transplant, which is we do that wow. out here. And it was totally like they were not trying to take the child away. They were really, they were really trying to integrate and help. So it's, and that would have never happened, you know, mm-hmm. all those years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing hearing stories like that because it just shows that, that you know, it's not just us that think outside the box. It's, it's other doctors that are also wanting right. to think outside the box because at the end of the day, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you maybe don't trust your medical doctor or, or you don't trust alternative therapies, there's definitely a movement that there's a cha- change that is happening that's ha- that has happened where, you know, doctors, at the end of the day, no matter what your title is, you, you've got the patient's best care in mind. And, you know, that's, that's important. And you, and you yeah. said something earlier, which, you know, as, as all of us as alternative practitioners or, you know, alternative to standard of care, we all harp on prevention. And really, that's, that's your best therapy against any chronic illness, but definitely when it comes to cancer. So, mm-hmm. so I want to I hear on, because I know you're, you're also a root cause focused doctor. You, you want to uncover some of the, the reasons for why people have got to the place that, that, that they have. I want to hear just some of your, you know, routine investigations for things that you look at that have allowed, you know, these epigenetic factors to turn on mechanisms for tumor growth or what have you. What do you, what do you usually look for with patients? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's that part has really evolved to just our understanding, you know, of tumor biology in the last 10 years is huge. So it was one of the reasons we put a a whole chapter in the book about, you know, basically what causes cancer, right? Which is not one answer (laughs) or it'd be a short chapter. Um, (laughs) And there's, um, but the reason I think that's so important and I was really excited. I got to write that. I, Mark just told me I had to anyway. So um, was there's, there's three sort of converging ideas around cause of cancer. And if you know where the causes might be coming from, then you can kind of turn rocks over to look for that. One of the things I think that just goes to human nature is um, people get invested in one cause or the other, and they'll think, you know, there is one cause and, and they're all about that and their treatment's all about it or whatever, which is fine. But the problem occurs that if you see enough people with cancer, you realize that there's a lot of other, you know, side doors into to triggering it, especially you think about children, you know, who mm-hmm. haven't been here that long and, and they have cancer. Obviously there's, you know, other factors at play there. So, um, 
kind of like, you know, the idea of having the phases of, you know, this is active treatment time and we got different, you know, fish to fry here versus recovery versus prevention. The same with cause. And so the big three areas, uh, just to keep it super simple, um, one is uh, genomic. And so, and, and what you're really saying there is, there's some cancers that have super hardcore uh, genetics that turn on easily. Uh, so the epigenetic triggers just spring them. A lot of, not a lot, some of the childhood cancers are that way where they're just born with this weird, bad collage of genes and it gets turned on from, from a trigger and you, it's, it's really tough. Um, most adult cancers that are related to genetics, even like BRCA genes, uh, that are related to breast and ovarian cancer, um, they still only express in say 60% of people that have the gene. So that means 40% have some epigenetic trigger that's actually shutting it off or shutting it down. So genetics have kind of, and it's, it's our human way of trying to, it, we want it one way or the other, right? It can't ever be more than one. Um, so genetics now are getting this backlash against them because all of the treatments for 50 years and research went into genetic causes. And we thought, well, if we can just shut off these switches, we'll have no cancer. Um, if that was going to work, we, we'd have been further ahead. Uh, and, and many of the genomically targeted therapies don't really work very well. And that's because you can target the genomics and that's great, but it's this whole microcosm of what turned the genes on really that, you know, we would look at. So genomics still are a big factor, but really it's epigenetics that feed in. Mm -hmm. Then there's um, an old, old idea of cancer theory, if you, if you will, that actually um, up through like the writing and publication of our book was being reframed in tumor biology, which I hadn't known that till I started digging into modern tumor biology research about cause. Um, and that was uh, that there was this old idea that um, uh, you cancer looked a lot like, uh, like gametes, you know, like the cells that come together to make embryo and stuff like that. Um, and so that theory was, so that it must be that kind of mechanism that creates cancer then. And this is like a hundred year old theory. Well, that theory got morphed over time and in, you know, in, in the 1990s, 2000s and up until today, what the tumor biologists are writing about is they were onto something, but they, their technology was very simple. So they were describing what they saw and it looked like uh, trophoblast, so they call it the trophoblastic theory. And so what they're really writing about nowadays is they weren't totally wrong there. We thought it was this crazy idea from the olden days, but what they're saying now is what they were seeing is cancer stem cells. And now that we have better tumor biology that we can do, of course, a hundred years later, um, cancer stem cells, they, they call it stem cell theory. It's, it's really not a theory. We know it occurs. And the thing that happens again is if they get turned the wrong way, if they're turned the right way, they will stay very quiet and maybe never do anything. If you get turned the wrong way, they will express. And so it's not a genomic expression. It's actually a stem cell expression. And that's, uh, and if they get really turned on, they can recruit your normal cells to be cancer cells. So there, so there's that one and, and the genomic one, a lot of the same triggers. 
And then the third real big idea, and I, I avoid calling them theories because they, that implies that, oh, they're probably not right. You don't know, no, they're, <laughs> they all have a say. The third one is metabolic uh, idea. And the, so um, Dr. Seyfried has written a lot about, a lot of books about metabolic theory. And again, it's, it's not all one or the other, but if you look at it, metabolism can, can be a big epigenetic stressor on both the stem cell and the, um, you know, and the genomics, toxicity can, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to consider the metabolism one way or the other. Um, and the way I look at that then is if, if you come in and you're in active treatment, my goals during active treatment are to keep your healthy cells as healthy as possible because it's a pretty hard active treatment on your body. Mm -hmm. I'm not as much worried about these other areas beyond working on your diet, metabolic stuff, and all of that because I need to get you to live through standard treatment. But the benefit of that is if you do integrative care during standard of care treatment, you come out the other side healthier and it's harder than actually to turn on either a stem cell driven problem or a genomic driven problem after chemo and radiation. Because another thing that we put in the book, and to my knowledge, we're the first book to take this out of the scientific realm and put it in, is it's very well accepted and known in papers being written today and as of like the day before we had to quit writing, um, that chemotherapy and radiation make you have more propensity for more cancer, either your primary or uh, metastases later on. And so, and, and this is hardcore tumor biologists writing, this is not a disputed fact. Mm -hmm. The only way, and they don't, you know, they end all their papers with, well, hopefully we'll develop a drug that'll stop that, right? And we need another drug to just shut off this tumor drive. But if you look at it, the reason that chemo or radiation does it is they're an epigenetic stressor. And so our goal during active treatment is we don't need to get in the way of your active treatment. We want to keep your healthy cells from getting any of this collateral damage. Mm -hmm. And in recovery, you really focus on that because we don't want them to turn on, you know, bad cancer. So it's, um, you know, knowing the underpinnings, then that gives you things to focus on. But then if you also have like a, a rational you know, approach that if I'm in the middle of radiation or chemo or both, or I'm going to get surgery tomorrow, I don't need a bunch of other stuff. I need to, I need to stay healthy and recover from that. And we can kick up the um, intensity on the healing and protection, et cetera. Mm. If I'm done with that therapy and I need to recover, and that's the first time I see any of us, I got to, you know, you got to work really hard on the recovery part. Uh, so I think knowing that there's these three big areas that all can turn on a cancer. And if you, you can have all three, it gives you places to focus. Mm -hmm. That's such an amazing breakdown. And, and what people need to understand is that the third one that you're referring to the metabolic approach to this whole philosophy is your tool for prevention. And I'd love for you to sort of dive in to, you know, could be Otto Warburg or, or just, you know, the anaerobic reality of cancer cells and, and why this, the, this emergence of fasting and, and detox and ketogenic diets, why it plays such an important role in that third process. Yeah. Um, well, you're, you're probably fortunate. I've ordered a new tripod. I have this wonderful 
a glass whiteboard that I, I could draw on, but you're going <laughs> to miss out on that. The, the other way I do it is on little cards I hold up, and those are right. it's, you know, We won't do any of that. Um, that's why I'm doing all my hand motions. Right. Uh, but, yeah, it's – Sorry, last time I did it, it was it was a big hit. Um, <laughs> so the the metabolic part is um, at least as, th as far as things you can do today to help across the whole spectrum of cancer therapy, you can start to interact with that. And um, there's what I another thing I try and get across to patients and also doctors is. If, if I look backwards just at all the patients I've seen over time and I look at, you know, they all maybe big groups may have done similar integrative therapies through their cancer uh, or similar cancers, et cetera. But yet some people do really well and some people it's better, but, you know, not as well. Because we're always trying to think, well, why did one group? You know, they all did kind of the same thing. Why would one group not do as well as the other? In most cases, it comes down to three things that are mostly in the patient's control, which is really important to know. And I think it, it, from the patient point of view or family, this is supposed to be empowering because you don't have to go elsewhere to do most of this basic stuff. And what we saw was if these foundational things were not addressed, all the other cool therapies, whether they were you know, botanical or IVs or whatever would help, but this like the foundation, they would just fall through. Mm -hmm. And what it turns out is for the most part, these three pillars uh, work on the metabolic, metabolic side of the patient to keep them strong, healthy, and less likely to either genetically or stem cell wise turn a cancer on. So it's sort of like the metabolism part is one of the big uh, effectors. So the three things I usually break down for people. The first one is is food, um, and this is not just what you eat, which is important, uh, but also how clean you're eating. And you know, we we don't live in a toxin-free world, so we can never totally get away from toxins. But what I tell people is we don't have to try and add it either. So, and we eat every day, uh, mm -hmm. so we don't you know we don't need to just you know get the most toxic food, which we're really good at producing here in North America. Uh, least toxic, but also then it goes to what is it you're eating? And then I, I, we, we add on nowadays the timing of eating, right? So food's a big driver, obviously, and tends to be, and you can, like we use um, keto or modified keto as an actual therapeutic tool with patients in many cases. You, it's really hard to do that on your own unless you're super well educated about it because we actually have people track their ketones and their glucose and put it into uh, a uh, an online program that shows that they're in ketosis. Because most people think they're doing keto, they're not. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're going to go to the trouble of doing a dietary change, you should actually be doing what you say you know, you're doing. So we, we track it that way if we're going to use it as a therapeutic input. And it's a big hammer. Um, but we've also had people where we have to adjust things either because of keto can be tough on some people or whatever. And, and then you have to look at, well, diet has, is a foundational thing too. So the first thing is really um, timing of eating, which we'll get to in a second. And then there's the toxicity stuff, trying to remove as much of that. And then there's just junk, you know, like processed food and stuff like that, trying to get that out of there then you can get up to the therapeutic things and they usually tend to be either like a uh, high 
uh, high fiber vegetable intake with a lot of flavonoids, clean fats and proteins, kind of low carb approach, or maybe a full on keto approach, still using clean foods. You have a lot of people that argue about, you know, keto or, or low carb or whole, you know, whole raw foods or whatever. And I've seen all of them work. Mm -hmm. I think the other problem is if people are not doing them in a clean way and they're not doing them, you know, with some thought around what they're doing to their metabolism, that's when you can get into trouble with, you know, different ideas around diets. And we see a lot of people, you know, who are trying to kind of freestyle on keto, for example, and they're, they're like, nowhere near in keto and so they're obviously not going to get the you know get the outcome but the diet part is important in that respect but the other thing that i've seen and i've seen more evidence of it not because it wasn't ever a thing it's just like this is one of those everything old is new again and 25 years ago if we had a cancer patient we would try and get them to fast and then we would do other stuff with them intermittent fasting wasn't so much of a thing but but we would do fast with them well, now that's like all the rage because fasting in one way or the other actually shifts your metabolome in a direction that's anti-cancer. And they even have, uh, you know, I was always so happy when I would come across like human studies that got published before we wrote the book. So I was able to put some of this stuff in because uh, a lot of the slam on the fasting study, well, they're mice or they're worms or whatever, which, all right. Um, but they did one that was really impressive to me, and it was um, with breast cancer survivors, which is a huge area of survivors. And they didn't change what they ate at all, which is, that was, first for a study, that's good. Now, for clinical use, you want to change what you eat too. But by simply leaving their diet the same, but putting one group on ad lib, you know, eat when you want, the other group did a 13-hour daily fast, so not too hard, really, to, mm -hmm. to not eat for the, you know, stop eating at dinner, drink a lot of water, you're sleeping the rest of the time. Uh, that's all they did. And a, they had a third um, higher survival rate over the, I forget, it's three or five years that they followed these people in the people that just did the 13-hour fast. So one of the things I'll tell people is, like, you have control over when you eat unless someone's feeding you, Right. Um, and then hopefully you can t tell them, um, we start with that, like baby steps. So cleaning their diet up, cleaning the food they eat up, and then starting with say a 13 hour fast. Cause you can, um, I, I, uh, for my own health maintenance do mostly daily intermittent fasting. And I started, you know, at 12 or 13 hours and then you sort of walked it forward and I do a little, I do more than that, but with the worst, you know, oh, I can't go without eating person, you can start with 10, 11, 12 hours and walk up to 13. And it was just really nice to know 13 hours would turn, um, it, essentially it turns on a process called autophagy and mitophagy. And it's it's a cell repair process. If you're constantly feeding yourself, uh, your body is in this, uh, oh, we must need to be metabolizing and growing. And you know the repair part doesn't turn on. So that's a huge part of it. And what we see with that, that actually makes as much impact as the kind of diet the person eats, I mean, this is excluding junk diets, um, is just by doing intermittent fasting, we've seen people's uh, average blood sugars drop a lot. Like we have people who do that, clean their diet up just in the mildest amount, 
and do a little bit of exercise and, and they'll go from being diabetic to non-diabetic in the type two diabetes uh, patient, which is a huge driver of metabolism. So, you know, what you eat, the food part, uh, how clean it is and the timing of eating. Now, some people will also, they'll, they'll do a 13 hour fast every day. And if they really want to be more aggressive, they may do a, a one day fast per week, um, or a two day fast. Um, because thankfully I don't have cancer to deal with. I just have my health to deal with. Uh, I try and do that like once a month. I'm, you know, it's, it's better than nothing, but that also will do it for you. And if people really have to, like there, there's some criticality to when they eat and they can't hit 13 or 14 hours, uh, we'll, we'll try and work them up to a weekly fast, which can also do that. So food is one big pillar and you can see like that, like, you can take all the pills you want and if what you're the fuel you're putting in and the timing the fuel goes in isn't appropriate the metabolism your body's metabolism will not play ball the middle one which is hugely important and all of the research of the last 10 years shows this but uh, the oncology world is really slow to uh, acquire this one is muscle and so the bottom line is you look at survival over time, more muscle mass, less fat mass equals longer survival of every disease, but especially in cancer. And this goes back to metabolism. It's like your whole body, you know, is moved by muscle and muscle is one of the biggest metabolic organs in your body. And if you're having muscle metabolism, it literally sends signals out of the rest of your body to be anti-cancer, anti-diabetic, et cetera. Fat metabolism sends signals out that's very pro-cancer, very pro-cancer stem cells, et cetera. So when we do that with people, now some, this freaks some people out because they've been like a couch potato their whole life and now they have cancer and they feel horrible. And it's like, well, you want me to work out? Um, you you know, it's easier to sell with people who were athletes before they, you know, that it's like, let's keep that muscle mass up, you know, but, but for a person who their first event of movement or, or, or exercise is, is in their cancer care, we start with graded exercise tolerance, like you do with chronic fatigue patients or anybody else. Um, and we just said, no, no, you, we don't want you to become, you know, marathoner, but I just tell, I just do this and I say, look, fat metabolism you die sooner. It's like no one argues with that muscle metabolism, you die later. Um, and all you need to do is incrementally increase it. So if, if you're literally just done with chemo and radiation and your exercise for the day is going to the bathroom and back, um, we have you do the equivalent of one of those trips more, you know, for a week and then the next week too. And pretty soon you're walking around your house, then around the block. And it's literally the big muscles. So like your leg muscles, thankfully, because pe- we usually get people to walk, um, your leg muscles will contribute more to this than any other part of you. Now, once they start to do it, they do other stuff. So m- muscle and food, huge. Um, and obviously more muscle means less fat. And the last one, is probably one of our biggest epigenetic stabilizers that people are either way into or they don't think of at all, kind of like diet. And that I call that brain. Uh, and what I mean by brain is everything around your mind. So it's how you're thinking about your cancer, how people are talking to you about your cancer, kind of what you're taking in mentally and emotionally, but also how like 
cancer diagnosis is horrible and people go through the stages of grief with it and they can get stuck in different stages and, and that's, they may not want to. And so we work a lot with uh, mental, emotional health workers who specialize in people with cancer and chronic illness so that if someone's motivated and they get stuck, they can move on through because I can tell you again from just looking back over time, if people don't handle the mental emotional part of the diagnosis, which you have to work on, they die faster. It's just like people who won't move or who won't change their diet or whatever. They just, we can spend a billion dollars treating you. I promise you, you'll die faster. Mm -hmm. So we usually talk to people about those things. And what's a bummer for most patients is what and how they eat, what and how they move and how they think and process that's all on me as the patient. You know, I can help the patient with that and we do, but getting them to see if we don't do these things, yes, you can pay a lot of money for other treatments. They're going to just, you'll get better and you're just going to crash. So I think that that, um, that focus, uh, has really helped. And that literally came from me looking backwards over the cancer research and then just my general career and saying anything in common with people who did better and worse, you know, and, and those things came up and it was this realization that, wow. And they're all totally in my, you know, wheelhouse as a patient, mm -hmm. um, it, which can be depressing to some people, but it should be empowering because you can take care of all that stuff and we can help you. So oh, it's, it's just the way he lays it out. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about this, this massive killer that affects so many individuals worldwide, right? Cancer is one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. And almost everything you just spoke to was how we talk about just being healthy and just preventing just most disease as, as a whole. Yeah. And we're just streaming from this epigenetic place of, Hey, look, like, do the basic things that you just need to be doing with the world that we live in, mm -hmm. you know, like focus on eating real food, which right. I think that's a no brainer for almost anybody. So that toxic picture, like you, like you speak to, and I'm so glad that you talk about that. And then like you're saying, like quit stuffing your face all day. Like we're, we're not, <laughs> we're not built to grow nonstop. And I, we, we, we yeah. become this population of more, 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 more. And it's in everything. It's in excess. And, you know, one of the things I'm always constantly telling my patients is like, you were designed to go back and forth from these feasts and famine modes. And if you, and if you skip one of them, you're going to throw the system off, right? Your metabolism. <laughs> and so I'm, I just love the way that you laid that out. And I'm so glad that you said, you know, this is just from my experience of seeing the ones that did better through this process and the ones that didn't. And and you have all these years and experience under your belt to where you're telling, like, look, people, if this happens to you, be smart about it. And you, you have to put in the work, you know, like you're saying, like we talk about the 80-20, right, Nick? Mm -hmm. I mean, they've got to do the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that you brought up the, the mindset piece. That's something we talk about, a lot about on this podcast. Uh, is just how important it is that we're we're dealing with constant trauma on a daily basis. You know, it's kind of like we're stuffing our faces with food. We're also stuffing our minds with, mm -hmm. you know, chronic, you know, negative thoughts or self-limiting beliefs or whatever. And, and that's that's poison for body. And the, and the work of Dr. Bruce Lipton talks, you know, ad nauseum about just the power of words, power of thoughts and emotions and whatnot. So, um, I'm I'm curious because I know you you teach a ton on IV therapy, and you know. 
people are always interested. What's the latest and greatest therapy? I, I want everyone to really sink into the fact that everything that Dr. Paul just spoke to is on, it's on you and you're going to take ownership of that. Mm-hmm. And how do you, where do you go from there? What's, what's next on, on the list? I know, I mean, we can dive into IV therapy or what have you, but what are some of the other therapies? And again, it's probably going to be cancer specific, but uh, what are some of the other therapies that you use on your patients? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, because especially like our clinic is, um, we do a lot of interventional things cause that's what I do. And that's, we've evolved to doing hyperbaric oxygen and hyperthermia and IVs and stuff. And one of the reasons that we're, I mean, other than it works, but one of the reasons we're really big on trying to educate patients about these foundations that they do is human nature for some people just pushes them towards, Oh, I'm going to go to this clinic and get these things done to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, most people are not going to give themselves an IV or hyperbaric or whatever. <laughs> uh, so it is done, you know, with you and to you. Um, but it can take, it disengages you sometimes from the personal responsibility part, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I saw my chiropractor this morning and, um, I have, you know, all these stretches that I do to try and stay, you know, not as messed up as I am. And it's like, you know, if I'm not doing my part, you know, it, it helps to get adjusted or whatever, but it's, I, I know I could do better, right. Especially getting off an airplane. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same. So with, with those, what I, you know, I literally have this, um, I keep drawing it with my fingers, but it's like, it's like three, you know, three foundational blocks and then the top part of the house, I, I call it all the other cool therapies. Um, and, and these, is, you got to spend money for these and all this. So why not you know, do the basics? So IV therapy um, is something I feel blessed that I, like I was doing before it was legal for me to do. The statute of limitations has run out on that. So uh, <laughs> it's like back in the, you know, in the olden days, it was kind of, uh, it was, you had to really do a lot of that. Thankfully we don't have to do that anymore. Um, but I think cause I came from the other side of medicine where it was sort of a common modality. It was just sort of like, this is really cool to put nutrients into people instead of, instead of just drugs. Um, in IV therapy, the, you know, the workhorse in, uh, in integrative oncology has kind of always been high dose vitamin C or vitamin C IVs. Almost every patient who comes in knows about like they've read about it or heard about it because it's gone on for a long time. Uh, so we've always done that. I think one of the things that both just practice and then some of the research that we did uh, with IVs and in this NIH funded research project, it just took us to a new level of understanding about why vitamin C works the way it does, but also kind of to finesse the therapies a bit more, you know, and I think of what we did 20 years ago and what we know and can do now. Um, it's a testament to human, you know, uh, uh, sturdiness that people, you know, didn't have more side effects with the stuff we used to do. Um, and, and there's now data and there's a lot of experience to show some people do better with higher and some people lower vitamin C doses. So one of the things is there, you know, that's not a new treatment, but making it a little more patient specific is, is a better idea than just slamming everybody into, you know, one, uh, uh, one protocol, let's say. Now, 
for the most part, the higher doses of people tolerate them not only help with what we call oxidation, which is good for viruses or cancer cells or whatever, as far as it's really irritates the immune system aimed at that. But the other thing is the normal healthy cells generally use vitamin C in a very different way than the cancer cells will. Some cancer cells about the same, some it's very different. Um, and so when I, when I tell people I'm more concerned about treating your healthy cells, the cancer cells almost will take care of themselves. It's really true. Vitamin C is just cool in that it actually has different uh, work it does with normal versus unhealthy mm -hmm. cells. So we still use vitamin C a lot in either lower or higher dose strategies, either for recovery from stuff or uh, during certain standard therapies to enhance them. There's a lot more research now showing, you know, they used to think vitamin C IVs would cancel out, you know, chemo or whatever, which is odd because if you look at how chemo were like you, vitamin C is not going to do that. All the research basically says, yes, it's, it's only a synergist. So we actually do it now along with standard therapies and people live better through them. So that's kind of, I guess the way we use vitamin C IV is very different than we used to. And I think the finesse part is very helpful. Um, there are other things uh, that along the way, um, you know, not having success drives more innovation than being successful all the time. And uh, it was interesting. I was talking to a pre integrative oncology practitioner, been to a bunch of classes over the years, I guess they, they just kind of having, uh, they're trying to put stuff together in their head. Uh, and, and they said, you know, you're probably the only person I've ever heard teach who actually talked about cases that don't work and they, you know, that this stuff doesn't work for everybody. And I said, yeah, that's, you know, part of accepting that is, you know, that. But the other part of that is it drives you to try new things. Because if you're always winning, you never try anything, you know, why would I try mm -hmm. something new? So there's other things that we came upon, especially in the research project, because we had access to things that some, some we don't have access to anymore. Um, and some we kind of do, or in Canada or Mexico we do. Um, and so things like uh, high-dose intravenous curcumin. Uh, interesting idea. You know, it had been done like once in humans before, and then there were some German oncologists using it a little bit, and we got access to um, a couple of different forms of it. The form in high dose makes uh, it's like totally different because mm -hmm. curcumin is not like vitamin C where it's water soluble and can go in my vein and just be okay. It has to be stabilized uh, to get in. But the thing that we saw with high-dose curcumin while we could get it in this particular form was we had people that had failed everything, including chemo and radiation, and they had bad metastases throughout their bones. We actually had cases, uh, it was about 15 cases we got to do it, where their bone metastases regressed, which you don't see. I mean, it, like even with chemo, sometimes like you'll see it, but not much. And this is on, you know, imaging where the radiologist would say, oh, the chemo's work. You know, they didn't know what we were doing. Um, so, so that was very impressive. Now, in America, we can't get that kind of uh, curcumin anymore. In Canada, you can. And so it's, uh, I, I wrote a, a paper, a how-to paper on it. Um, the kind we can get in America, sadly, we tried that on the same patients and their cancer came back just because it's stability was different. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's a, that's a kind of thing like innovatively that, that was really good to see that there was something that could be done. Now, 
completely uh, completely not related. Um, there, there's a uh, chemotherapy drug that is basically curcumin uh, for IV use that's that's getting through phase three trials and will be out uh, for the public soon. Now it's not used quite in the same way, uh, but it was that good. So there you go. And I, wow. uh, I wish I owned that patent, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I've, I've always worked with uh, uh, public domain uh, substances. And so you don't get any money for any of that. So there's that. Um, the other thing was uh, something I learned from German oncologists again, we would we in this trial that we did with humans. Uh, my part, as you mentioned, was the IV part, but we we had a whole integrative oncology team: the diet, acupuncture, mental, emotional, every you know herbs, the whole thing. Some people would opt for IVs, and so that's where I came in. And and so we would often sit and say, with our bad stage four patients, so the only people I got were stage four. Uh, who's who's still alive? You know, and are they doing anything different? Because people at that point were you know, we're doing all sorts of stuff. We had a lady who should have been dead long, long ago, and she was going to Germany and getting this therapy. And she came home with a suitcase full of uh, this extract from wormwood, the plant wormwood called artesanate, for, which is the IV form. Artemisinin is usually the pill form, which is now much more known in the oncology world. But back then it was not known very well. But what they were doing in Germany, and they I got literally a handwritten recipe on how to do this from this oncologist. It was, you know, but Hey, all right. Uh, we did it on me first and I didn't die. And so then we tried it. <laughs> like she, and she, she had been doing it over there and, and this oncologist was all, all excited. So he sent a suitcase full of the, the drug over. I, I don't know who paid for it, but she like brought in this giant suitcase and now he'd be arrested. Um, <laughs> So we did the, our, what they were doing in Germany was the artesanate first, a quick infusion, very well tolerated. It's one of the most used drugs in the whole world for malaria. So it's it's got more safety data than almost any other drug. So that part we felt good with. And then we do the vitamin C afterwards. It turns out there was synergy. Well, we actually followed a group and she had breast cancer. So that we had this bright idea that we'll try it. And we had a lot of breast cancer patients. We followed a group of 40 patients that we were seeing. So they're all getting integrative care. No change there. 30 uh, did integrative care without IV and 10. So it was a three to one ratio. 10 roughly did um, this addition of the artesanate vitamin C. And over the three years that we tracked them, what we saw was that they're um, in the people doing IV plus their integrative care, their survival rate stayed much higher. And you know, each year with metastatic breast cancer, you get a lower survival rate. Mm -hmm. And it was not only statistically significant, but it was, you know, the, the power was pretty impressive. And we kind of saw that with vitamin C, but there was obviously a bigger effect there. And the two things I think with those therapies are, um, whether it's the wormwood family of plant, like the artemisinins, uh, artesanate, or the curcuminoids, the way that they do what they do is through modulating the immune system. And a lot of people will think, oh, we need to have our immune system really aggressive for cancer or whatever. Um, the biggest problem in cancer is not so much being aggressive. It's, it's going back to neutral balance because our body is homeostatic and likes balance. Metastases 
are promoted when there's imbalance. And turns out curcuminoids, and in a totally different way, the wormwood family of plants try to bring you back to balance more than they're stimulating. Uh, there's a little stimulation of some stuff, but really the end product is balanced. So that's, we felt that's probably why that worked. That therapy is um, again available in Canada and Mexico. Um, IV uh, artesanate is, uh, as soon as I started to talk about it, it's not available in the US anymore. Um, I, I have a suitable for framing cease and desist from the FDA for uh, for importing it at one point. So they, the FDA and I go way back. We're very <laughs> Um, you guys are close. Yeah, we're. I, I'm so far out of the closet now. It's like all that, all that back alley illegal stuff. I used to. I can't. You can't do anything anymore. Uh, but I can advise people in other countries, and I do that a lot. So those are super useful. The good thing is we can still get wormwood and and its different extracts for oral use, and they're they're making them better absorbable now. And there's actually research going on now. Um, where they're doing them orally. It's not as magnificent an effect as IV can do, but especially in GI cancers, artemisinin and uh, orally works very well. So we, mm. we do a lot of it still. So things like that came out and there was other stuff too that we, that we did a lot of things actually, which we don't want to go down. It's, it's a bit technical and rabbit traily. So I'll just say we go back to those three cancer cause things. Um, once we took, and supported metabolic therapies through diet plus other metabolic uh, helpers. So there's an IV protocol and an oral protocol that can help there. Uh, hyperbaric oxygen can help, et cetera. Uh, we started to see big increases in survival in people who were not surviving. So that was very remarkable too. Um, that big protocol I, I got to publish and write up uh, in it. It, it freaks people out because it involves so many different moving parts. But like if you're dying, you're usually willing to try to, you know, get the cancer under control, but really it all goes back to supporting metabolism. Mm -hmm. It's just, if your cancer's out of control, you have to support it way more than say someone who's doing um, just prevention for health. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of cool things as, as, a, as so like in the book, um, Mark and I would, so we have about, 1100 peer-reviewed references to, to reference everything in the book, which by the way, uh, our publisher Hay House did not know we were going to do. It's referenced like a textbook, but it's written for the layperson. Hmm. And we did that so that when they go to their doctor and they say, there's no science behind this, it's like, well, except for these 1100 references. Uh, so, <laughs> so Mark and I would have these contests and I thought I won with the IV chapter because I was like 280 references or something. And I, you know, so I sent him an email gloating and he says, yeah, I just finished the botanical medicine chapter and that's 350 or whatever. It was. <laughs> now, I don't know if you, it, it's, a, it's a lot. So there's a, like the botanical story could go on and on. Like uh, mushrooms became a huge, uh, huge, mm -hmm. I mean, we're always using them, but we got to know a lot more about mushrooms and tons of other things. A fermented wheat germ extract became kind of a star. A mm -hmm. um, number of other things from the plant world, obviously. Um, so tons and tons of stuff. Uh, now the thing I think, and this goes to kind of my educational side, is 
how do we know now, like now that we don't just have one therapy, how do we know when to do it or how do we know when to finesse the vitamin C in one way or the other or use oral stuff at what dose? Um, and that's something I think it's really good for patients. It's, very, it's a huge learning curve for the doctors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's part of your mission too, is to, to share this information with doctors. And, you know, before we get to the end of the, the show, we definitely want to leave some more information for doctors because doctors do listen to the podcast. They want to know how to access your information, check out your workshops and things like that. But one of the things I think that, that you keep coming back to in your conversation, which is so helpful, is that we're not treating cancer. Like I love how you keep bringing it back to that. You're bringing the body back into balance. Mm-hmm. And, and when it's just a, it's a mindset shift to just get out of that space that we're not attacking an illness, we're not stopping an illness, we're just making your body more resilient, more adaptable, we're teaching your body how to come back into balance. And all those therapies you recommended, or not recommended, but spoke to, improving oxygenation, improving your metabolism, your use of fat versus just carbohydrates or sugar, you know, the mindset piece, getting rid of the garbage and the clutter there. It's just, you're just sort of leveling the playing field so the body can actually just do what it's supposed to do. You know, Dr. David and I talk about this all the time. You're removing the obstacles to healing. The innate healing potential is within, not without. And you keep bringing it back to that messaging, which is so unbelievably empowering for so many people. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do for us as a profession, but I mean, for the patients and uh, it's amazing. Um, David, what do you, what do you got for us, buddy? No, in in addition to Doc, uh, just the the way you laid it out, I think is just awesome. You know, I think there's a lot of confusion in a lot of these things, and if people can just make sense of it, it's just more easy for them to adapt this integrated approach and understand that, like like Nick's saying, like we're not going after the cancer; we're going after the reason your body it wasn't able to fight off the cancer to begin with, right? So, um. I'm I'm a huge fan already, man, and I'm just getting to learn about you. So <laughs> I, I really I really did enjoy this, and I I, li- I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, Thanks. we we hope to bring you back because this is like this is like not even I can't even call this the tip of the iceberg for uh, Dr. Paul Anderson. I, I think this is like, I think we hit the tip of the tip today. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this was really the the high spots, but I I appreciate uh, you keeping me on track though. It's a uh, there's so much to talk about uh and it, and that becomes the, the problem sometimes trying to get it all into one but mm-hmm. I, I just want to circle back that one concept um that has become really a big part of as you've seen kind of the way we try and language this with patients and families is is really coming back to empowering people that this is a lot of it is in in your wheelhouse like you can do it you know and the more you do the better but the other thing is um when we wrote the book, that was our other goal, other than not being us versus them or whatever, and just having information. Mm-hmm. But for instance, we put a, a chapter in that has different cancers and common therapies. And it's in, and we say in the beginning of the chapter, some people misinterpret it, but uh, we're not saying this is what we do for every person with prostate cancer, every person with, uh, you know, bone mets or whatever. But for you, the patient who gets inundated with a billion, I mean, the internet is wonderful mm-hmm. and also overwhelming. If you look up your cancer, this is where we would start after all these years of doing this. And so it doesn't mean these are the only things we do. So we have like two tiers, you know, but if we were going to spend our own money and time on things beyond these basic things we talked about, 
we would start here because we just have a track record that says these are more, you know, the batting average is higher. These are going to hit more. And then we got fallback things. And so you, the patient, then if you're out researching and you hear about, you know, um, some, you know, something which may be totally legit, uh, but no one's ever researched it or heard of it or anything. Um, we try and steer you towards, you know, putting your resources into things that are more likely to, you know, be useful. And I, I think that's, that was a big part of educating the the patient that we really did try to, you know, put in there. And that mm-hmm. was, that was Mark's really drove that because I get all eggheaded about it. And, uh, <laughs> and he would, he would email me and say, you know, Paul, remember we're writing to, to real people. And, uh, right. <laughs> This is really wonderful, but you're going, you went way in the wrong direction. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, uh, it's just, it's about patience and, and uh, letting them know there's so much more that they can do. So mm-hmm. I'll tell you what we, we, at the end of every podcast, we always leave patients with some home play and that's basically just an exercise for them to, to start to, you know, uh, encourage them to start to look into these different areas or utilize some of them. And, I'm just going to say it. I think that the best thing that you can do is we all know someone. What the cancer rates are one and two now? Yeah, almost one and two. Yeah, one one and three to one and two. Yeah. So this is this is this is a handbook. This is a a resource guide for you to take, uh, you know, to your loved ones, to anyone you know, but also to your doctor, and say this is these are things that I'm interested in applying because the more you can strengthen your team in this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, the better you're going to do. And so those resources are essential. And it's a, it's a life manual, really, to become more adaptable, to bring your body back to homeostasis. We all need this. Uh, we all need to share this with others. So I, I'm going to encourage that your own play, home play is go on Amazon, go wherever you need to do, and check out the book, um, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies by Dr. Paul Anderson and Dr. Steng- Stengler, right? Mm-hmm. Mark yeah. Stengler. Mark Stengler. And uh, check it out. So uh, Dr. Paul... Yeah, it's such a pleasure having you on here. Uh, you're a hero of mine. Uh, you're now a hero of Dr. David here and uh, everyone who's listening. And, you know, check where, where can we send them to? Doc- yes, maybe you can tell us where we can send people to learn about your courses that you're teaching and doctors on, um, patient, potential patients to the clinic in the Seattle area and beyond. Um, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, on, on the patient side, uh, if you go to cancerandchronicdisease.com that gets to our website at advanced medical therapies we actually have a lot of resources there um, and uh, a lot of stuff you can look at that's under the patient side on the doctor practitioner side um, consultdranderson.com is a ce website it also has a big um, uh, hundreds and hundreds of things i've written over the years uh, searchable that are free and everything there's some ce can pay for too, but there's a lot of free stuff on there. Uh, for doctors, that's the kind of the portal into a lot of my online content. Um, and then also there's a schedule uh, on there of, you know, where am I doing talks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I do a conference that I run twice a year. We're doing oncology in the fall, but we have a different topic twice a year called advanced uh, applications in medical practice. Um, and the info's there for that too. So the oncology one is it's kind of for the physician practitioner, it's all this stuff we talked about and how to kind of 
make sense of it and actually mm -hmm. do it without getting too confused. So that's, there's that. And if you don't like to type Anderson, it, it also has a URL of just <laughs> consult DRA, consult Dr. A.com uh, for people who don't want to type long words. So. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we'll put in the yeah. show notes, all that, all that information. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> David, do you want to take us out? Yeah. Well, there you have it, everyone. Another amazing practitioner here shedding his knowledge with us all. And get on that home plate. Check out his book. Um, again, Doc, thank you. Much appreciated. Much thank love. You. And, uh, yes, we're going to have you on again to hit another one of these topics for sure because there's plenty more to dive yeah. in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, in the theme of uh, all these fun things for disease prevention, there's another one this week, and we'll see you guys again next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the Dr. Dads and share with your family and friends. You can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.